Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Across the country today, we are witnessing a robust attack upon the concept of critical race theory, an academic format that is used to analyze and teach about how race and racism impact law and institutions in this country and society. These attacks have been highly visible in the media and have created a hysteria from conservative political forces which seek to brand CRT as being divisive and that it teaches that white people are inherently racist. The anti-critical race theory campaign has resulted in the enactment of legislation and legal directives to make it unlawful to teach CRT in schools and policy changes in corporations to alter their anti-racism training programs and other efforts. Parents are regularly observed at school board meetings ranting about CRT and the teaching about the history of race and racism in this country. CRT is not taught in elementary, middle, or high school, yet the attacks continue. The CRT attacks became a favorite campaign of Donald Trump, who sought to impose restrictions on the use of federal funds in any program that sought to conduct anti-racism program within any institution or corporation. That attack has been expanded now to include any institution which seeks to address race, racism, diversity, and equal justice. As Marvin Gaye would say, What's going on? Tonight, we're going to discuss this topic and allow you to better understand CRT, its development, its history and focus, its intended use and uh, impact. So joining us for this discussion by Erica Wilson, who is an associate professor and the Thomas Willis Lambert Distinguished Chair in Public Policy and is the director of the clinical program at the University of North Carolina School of Law at Chapel Hill. Also joining us is uh, Angela Gay Audrey, who is the director of the African-American Cultural Center at North Carolina State University and is a PhD candidate there. So first of all, we wanna thank uh, the two of you for uh, joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me as well. All right, let, let, me, let me just start this uh, conversation, first of all, by, uh, and this is for our audience, uh, asking you to kind of describe the work that uh, you do at your respective institutions. So why don't we start with, uh, with uh, Angela, since she's a uh, Wolfpacker, and then we'll go to uh, Erica, uh, one of the Tar Heelers. <laughs> well, hello there. Thank you for having me again. Um, I am director of the African American Cultural Center here at NC State University. My work is 
well, my work is very much centered on liberation. That is what I'm squarely centered on every day. Um, so what that looks like here in African-American Cultural Center is creating space, harbor spaces for Black students, um, African students, African-American students to thrive, to be retained to the university, to find culturally relevant social interaction, to feel affirmed, um, to be present in their everyday experience, to have a space where they can come and take off the burdens of being a minoritized and sometimes marginalized student on a historically and predominantly white campus. Okay. Professor Wilson. Um, yes. And so um, I am a law professor at UNC Chapel Hill, but I like to say that my work is centered around teaching the next generation of law students how to effectively lawyer uh, and to lawyer in ways that, um, that negates racial subordination and does, does not propagate it. And I think this is an important distinction because um, hopefully as we'll talk about, the law has been used uh, in large part to create and reify um, racism, racial subordination and, and race generally. So I think, uh, one of the things that I've done is create a specific um, clinic uh, that is called a critical race lowering civil rights clinic that incorporates concepts of critical race theory uh, in terms of giving students the foundation of tenets of critical race theory and teaching them how to use those tenets and formulating effective lawyering strategies uh, and advocacy strategies generally, I should note, because um, as I said earlier, the law is often guilty of uh, creating and reifying racial subordination. So one thing that we really look at is other advocacy strategies outside of the law. So I'm really um, proud of the work that we're doing and think it's especially important that law students and future lawyers have these frames uh, that critical race theory offers. Well, follow, following up from that uh, response, just let me just ask you, uh, how, how did how did you become uh, involved in this uh, in, in CRT critical race uh, theory? So I like to say that I am fortunate enough to have actually attended a law school uh, where critical race theory was a an integral part of the curriculum. So I uh, graduated from the UCLA School of Law, and it's uh, one, the only law school that has a specific specific critical race studies concentration. Um, and so this was tremendously beneficial to me because it gave me an opportunity to understand these frames at the same time that I was learning the law. A lot of time law students have great dissonance sitting in constitutional law and they're like, what's going on here? And they don't have these frames. I was very fortunate to have um, Cheryl Harris uh, of Whiteness's Property as my con law professor. I was a research assistant for Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, I took classes with Devin Carbato and Laura Gomez. So these are foundational um, scholars in terms of critical race theory. And so that's how I initially got introduced to uh, critical race theory. And then when I went out into practice, I quickly realized everyone else didn't get the, they didn't get this assignment, they didn't get the frames. And so uh, it became um, an interest of mine in terms of sharing, uh, sharing the gospel, I like to say, with other lawyers in particular. And, and Angela, what about you? How did, how did you get involved with uh, critical race theory? 
Yeah, my involvement with CRT began when I started my PhD program. So back in 2016, I came to NC State to pursue my doctorate. And I was in a class and I was experiencing that dissonance that Erica was just talking about. And so person like me, I had a whole lot of questions because I was like, this is what I know to be true. This is what is happening in the realities of Black folks. And this is what I hear you saying. There's a gap somewhere. Um, and then someone introduced me to critical race theory um, as a tool to be able to ask to ask those questions and to also seek the answers to those questions. Um, so I dived into CRT similar to how I dived into Black feminism when I was in my master's program, right? Um, and they're not so disparate, Black feminism and critical race theory. Um, and so then we, I, I had the privilege, I was surprised, but NC State, I'm um, in my college of education, they had a class specifically centered on critical race theory. So I really got to do a deep dive during a summer um, of really exploring the nuances of critical race theory, um, understanding how it is utilized in education, the different between K-12 education, the utilization, which really is, well, we'll get into that conversation later, <laughs> um, and the ways that it looks in, um, the way it looks in higher education, when we talk about it in scholarship, when we talk about it in research, what does it look like in the everyday? And I also am very much engaged in practice. I don't believe in just having conversations philosophically. So I was also assistant director of the Women's Center. So critical race theory began to inform my practice, even as I was thinking about what is my work with women and gender minoritized people? How do I engage this from a perspective that allows people to think critically about the ways that they are doing the everyday, moving about the everyday. So it's also learning, but it's also in addition to that, the practice of it as well. Well, let me just you know switch back to Erica because you 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 sat at the uh, at the foot of one of the uh, creators, uh, and uh, along with uh, Derek Bell, uh, Emily Crenshaw uh, is uh, one of the leading. Uh, uh, proponents of uh, critical race theory and, and help to develop the process. So can you kind of tell the, our audience, what is critical race theory? Because we, we've heard a lot about what it is and what it isn't. So you, you're an expert on this. What is it? <laughs> so I'm going um, to to approach this from the perspective of the law, because I think it's often missed that critical race theory, the scholars who came together to formulate um, this body of work originated in, in law, um, in law schools. And one of the reasons that they originated in law and law schools is because, um, as they would say themselves, they were the post-civil rights generation of uh, people of color in these really white institutions. And so one of the myths that uh, was perpetuated at the time and in many ways continues to be perpetuated is that um, we now have constitutional guarantees of equal protection under the law under the 14th Amendment and that those, uh, those guarantees were supposed to eradicate uh, the kinds of gross racial disparities and racism that we're seeing, but it did not. And so these scholars came together in order to uh, put a name to why, uh, and part of the genesis of critical race theory uh, that's often missed is that critical race theory originated in large part as a critique uh, to the existing frames that exist in the law. And so some examples of some of the frames that exist in the law, what we call 
uh, legal liberalism is the idea that law is separate from other varieties of social control or that the law yields um, forms of rules that are objective and legitimately normative mechanisms and that the law yields determinative and predictive results uh, in the judicial process. And so uh, critical race theory scholars uh, looked at that and along with some other um, scholars had serious critiques of it, but the critical race theory critique was rooted in the idea uh, that race is quite salient uh, to what happens and that uh, we needed new frames to understand the ways in which the law helps to both build uh, racial domination and subordination uh, and the reasons why things like the 14th Amendment weren't doing the task to, to eradicate it. And so I like to say critical race theory, uh, particularly when we think about it in the context of the law, uh, gives us frames to understand uh, the ways in which the law um, reifies racism. And I define racism to mean more of a normalization and legitimization of uh, power dynamics that routinely advantage uh, whites while producing um, chronic adverse outcomes for people of color. Uh, the frames that CRT gives us also helps us to understand how uh, systems uh, interact to produce specific results for individuals uh, based on their um, intersecting identities, for example. And so I like always like to emphasize that critical race theory uh, is a framework. Uh, it, it is not a kind of propaganda as it's often uh, labeled these days as teaching that white people are bad. Uh, instead, it is an analytical tool that can be used to help us understand uh, why systems produce the results that they are producing. And I guess the last thing I'll say on that is that it, these frames are really important uh, because as I like to say, if you don't have the right frame, you often get the wrong solution. So what we see when it comes to explaining racial disparities, for example, in the absence of CRT frames, particularly in the law, what we get is, um, solutions that are, are uh, aimed at fixing cultural pathologies, this idea that something is wrong with Black people and our disparities exist because uh, our family structure is messed up or we, we are culturally deficient. And so these frames are extremely important to, um, to negate uh, that myth and to help us really get at the root of the uh, structures that are causing racial disparities. Erica, that was, yeah, very helpful. Um, Angela, I wanted to ask you if you could, based on Erica's kind of laying out the, um, the, the origins of critical race theory and explaining what it is, you mentioned that you were exposed to it in your PhD program. There was a class that you took um, in the education department. Can you talk about how um, in the class that you took and your understanding of critical race theory, how that informed your understanding and your approach to the work that you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like how Erica centered on um, the feelings that white folks have around critical race theory, right? So I'm gonna start there. Um, and when we talk about whiteness, we're not talking about people. When we're talking about whiteness, we're talking about a system, an ideology, um, a system of thought that has been legalized in such a way that it actually creates barriers for other people. 
right? We're talking about privilege and we're talking about dominance. And when we're talking about dominance, we're also talking about oppression. And so recognizing, coming back to this foundational piece, like CRT, yes, derived from critical legal studies, but what it did, it, it provided a space to be able to ask some very foundational critical questions like, how does the law construct race? How is the law protecting racism and upholding hierarchy? How does it reproduce oppression and racial inequality and racial inequity? Um, and so these are the questions that are happening, but those questions are happening not just in the legal system, but they're also happening in education, right? So we see that when we recognize it, we don't typically, when I said like, it's a surprise that we had a class specifically devoted to critical race theory, that's because we don't typically have classes that are devoted to black thought, black philosophy, black theories. That's an, in, in, that's an equity, right? We don't have classes that teach us our history. I didn't begin to know about my blackness until I went to college to undergrad. So there's a lot of, um, thought that comes from critical race theory that allows us to then counter storytell. It allows us to acknowledge how endemic and pervasive racism is to understand that race is actually a social construct, that it is something that has been socialized, that we created. Therefore, if we created race, we also created racism. It holds account space for accountability. So that's where I am to my, my studies. Okay, well, we're we're at that uh, at that mark, and the music is being played. We're gonna take our break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as uh, we continue our conversation about this attack on critical race theory. Our experts uh, here this evening are uh, Erica Wilson, an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and uh, Angela Gay Audrey who is uh, the uh, director of the uh, African-American Cultural Center at North Carolina State University. And uh, she's also a PhD candidate uh, there. So stay with us and we will be Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and I'd like to wish everyone a happy Black History Month with a friendly reminder that Black history is indeed American history. I am now here with your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. What is critical race theory, and what is all the buzz around it? Critical race theory is a concept that has been around for longer than more than 40 years. In essence, it explains that race is a social construct as biologically all humans have 99.9% .9 of the same genetic makeup. Further, it states that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but also something embedded in legal systems and policies. Critical race theorists hold that racism is inherent in the law and legal institutions of the United States, and they function to create and maintain social, economic, and political inequalities between whites and non-whites, especially in African Americans. To an extent, the term critical race theory is now cited as the basis of all diversity and inclusion efforts. Critics of the theory state that this is an attempt to disturb the liberal ideals of our nation, such as neutrality, equality, and fairness. This is an attempt to sugarcoat the effects of race on this country as we know it. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review 
so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue this uh, discussion of the uh, attack on critical race theory. We uh, had a really outstanding description of the uh, history and background and uh, uh, defining of what critical race theory uh, is. And I know a lot of people have uh, seen the attacks on uh, television and read about it. Uh, they heard it over the, uh, the radio. Uh, so let me just go back to our experts uh, in this uh, uh, topic. And uh, uh, it's kind of, at least from my perspective, kind of hypocritical what uh, these attacks are all about. Uh, so starting with, uh, with, with uh, uh, Erica, uh, what is your opinion about the real focus of these uh, attacks and the broadening of uh, the use of critical race theory and the analytical tool that's been uh, created in that regard? So can you kind of explain that to our audience? So I think it's important to uh, preface this by saying that sometimes when we defend critical race theory, there's a tendency to say they're not even teaching critical race theory in K through 12 education. And for a while I was on that bandwagon. Then I started to realize that this is not necessarily about um, attacking critical race theory as it's constituted. It is about propagandizing any attempts to um, address racism and white supremacy. And so from that perspective, I think it's extremely important to continue to push back and not just say they're not even doing this in K through 12 education. I think the origins of the attack are uh, one of the tenets of critical race theory is that uh, we have reformed then retrenchment, right? That there, there's not a linear line of progress. Instead, we'll have a reform and a stark retrenchment to bring us back to a worse place. Well, if you look at the things that happened in 2019, 2020, we had the 1619 project with Nicole Hannah-Jones taking up a lot of space and changing the ways that we, we talked about enslavement. Then we had the summer of 2020 with uh, George Floyd's murder uh, and the way and it going viral and it really um, showing people who otherwise hadn't been paying attention uh, the state violence that Black people are subject to. And you had all of these things swirling together to, for a moment, begin to change the way that we talked about race and racism. You had corporations coming out with all of their DEI initiatives. You had Black Lives Matter being uh, uh, painted on streets, et cetera. And so this changing of the narrative uh, was a threat or is a threat uh, to those who seek to uphold um, white supremacy and the current maldistribution of power and resources. And so in line with the reform retrenchment tenet of critical race theory, we had the reform a uh, little bit in 2020. And I, as I always like to say, black people, we know our moments only a moment. So I went back and looked at my Facebook and I think in August of 2020, I said our moments only a moment uh, and they're about to come back with something to try and undo this moment. And that's what we're seeing now. I think these attacks on critical race theory are part of a concerted effort to bring us back to an even worse baseline in terms of the way that we conceptualize race and racism 
But the last thing I'll say is I also think it's a mistake not to understand the way these attacks on CRT are also connected to attacks on voting rights, um, attacks on ability to protest, for example. All of these things are part of uh, a concerted effort to maintain a particular social order. Um, and it's important that we see the interconnections and, and um, to acknowledge what's happening and continue to fight back against all of it. And Angela? Yes, thank you, Erica, for all of that. I just wanna co-sign on that because that was beautifully stated. I'm, I'm thinking back to 2020, September, when that executive order came out. Um, and what happened in higher education is all of a sudden, everyone was in fear that we would have to stop doing the work that we did. And therefore, if we weren't doing that work, whatever that work was situated within community and cultural centers, situated within diversity programs, what was our work, right? And so this also came back to, I wanna say like 2016, 2017, we had Senate Bill 521. Um, when we were having a conversation about what is the work of diversity offices. Now, I don't really believe in diversity. Diversity is literally us, right? We here are diverse, right? And experiences and thoughts and shades and hues of blackness, um, we, we literally exist as diverse. Diversity programs, what we really wanna call them are inclusion, right? So I think what is happening, you asked the question of what, what are our opinions or our thoughts about what the real argument is. I think it's three things. I think it's a lack of healing, a lack of accountability, and also a lack of knowledge, right? And I'll start with the knowledge piece. Most of the time, folks don't know what critical race theory is. In the classrooms in K-12, what they're seeing is a culturally relevant pedagogy. And culturally re relevant pedagogy is what is affirming kids in classrooms, is letting them know that they are seen, that they're smart, that they can do anything they want. They don't have to be limited by the boundaries and the barriers that are happening around them. Because we know students get tracked into gifted programs or into not gifted programs. Students get tracked into troublemakers or the good black kid, right? And this isn't just black folks. This is also our Latino, our Latinx students, our Asian students um, who, are who are told you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We still have that ideology that persists today. Um, then there's this, this feeling of guilt. I've heard it so many times in the discourse, white folks feeling guilty, um, feeling like they are supposed to be made to feel bad. And they use this to talk about CRT as a divisive concept, right? Well, it's not divisive because we're not talking about white folks. We're talking again about whiteness. We're talking about a level of privilege. We're talking about a belief system that is guiding the ways that we engage with one another in the world under these social constructions of race. Therefore, there's also this lack of accountability, wanting to shift um, a desire to shift a narrative to tell actual stories, which is why we see banning of books, because they don't want to actually know the stories of Black folks. They don't actually want to know what's happening in the lives of Black folks or um, Black and brown bodies or in darkened spirits, right? They want us to be able to move away from our culture and assimilate into a dominant culture. Um, so coming back to meritocracy, coming back to colorblindness, um, 
one of the things, the, a popular discourse was, oh, when Obama was elected, we were a post-racial society. Then why, are, to Erica's point, why are we still talking about George Floyd? Why are we still having to, to march for lives to say that Black lives do matter? Because what we see in our everyday context, on the streets, outside of grocery stores, in our own homes, is that there's policing that tells us and shows us that Black lives do not matter, that Black lives are extinguishable. And so I think there's a lack of healing that comes with that. And, and that healing is generational. And this is me coming from a therapist perspective right? Um, that healing is necessary so that when we are addressed with facts, with everyday truths, with people's actual lived realities and stories, we don't instantly feel guilt. We don't instantly feel defensive. We can actually sit with that and think about what our role is in collective healing together. Both of you, wonderful. Um, Erica, you had mentioned the reform retrenchment um, kind of understanding of, of how this country deals with race. And, and as you were talking about that, and you mentioned the 1619 Project, 2019, 2020, um, and then as we talk about the attacks on critical race theory, you know, th these attacks kind of prove the accuracy of this framework. I mean, if you just like understanding um, it's a perfect example of how the CRT framework helps to explain the history and, and what we can expect to see in the future if we are not proactive about trying to solve this problem. And, and that leads me to this next question, which is we've got all these attacks. So what's being done and what can be done to counter this inaccurate narrative and, and to make sure that we have the necessary healing and accountability and, and education to, to deal with these issues that are so prevalent in this country? So I think it's, as I continue to say, it's really important um, to not cede ground here, to continue to uh, challenge uh, the legislation, uh, whether that's in the courts, for example, I think that's an important thing to do. But also in the public domain, I think it's important not to cede crown in terms of the narrative that's being um, set. Because one of the issues that I'm increasingly having is I feel like we are shadow boxing ghosts here. Uh, we are trying to defend something um, that is a ghost. And I think it's really important that those of us who um, are scholars in this area, those of us who are activists, whatever the case might be, we need to be propagating our own affirmative vision, right? And, and making sure that we affirmatively tell the story uh, of what critical race theory is instead of um, trying to negate what it's, or say what it's not. Uh, it's really important. And I think those on the right who are pushing these attacks know this, they understand this. I mean, I think the uh, the Rufo guy who decided to use critical race theory as a catch-all for any discussion about race, um, racism, white supremacy uh, was very intentional about that. And I think that's one of the areas that I would like to see us collectively um, merge our efforts towards in terms of putting out affirmative uh, visions for what society could look like and should look like and to, instead of shadow boxing. I think there are groups like the African-American Policy Forum, for example, uh, Professor Crenshaw's group, who are doing a marvelous job of uh, trying to do that very thing through 
videos, webinars, uh, social media. I think that we need to do that times a thousand. Um, I think the other thing that we need to do, uh, and this is of course coming from the lawyer perspective, is I do think that many of these bans are ripe for challenges on First Amendment grounds in particular, and that it's important to, um, to engage those systems as well. Angela, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think at the chorus voice, I remember when we were originally having a conversation around a teaching for CRT, um, there were a lot of points of pause, a lot of questions, because there's fear around talking about critical race here. I had to be very strategic in the way that I framed this teaching on breaking the silence to not say critical race and theory in the same order <laughs> in order to really get across what we were talking about. Now we can talk, I can talk about critical race theory without saying the word at all, because it's really in the tenants themselves. Critical race theory can actually inform us when we talk about, like we have to recognize there's no neutrality of law, right? That's in the critique of liberalism. So one thing is to talk about that, to talk about how incremental change actually does not make change for the people in the present, in the here and the now. And sometimes it won't for many generations. It's also in the storytelling that we have to, to do to be able to tell our own story. So it is giving voice and using these tenants to uphold that voice in a very strategic way. And I also really believe in aligning your politic. It's one thing to talk about critical race theory. It's a completely other thing to practice it, right? To think about what that looks like in the everyday. And also aligning your politic to thinking about the roots of critical race theory. Um, Crenshaw also developed or coined the term intersectionality, right? Um, and we know that came from womanist and black feminist. Critical race theory also arrived out of that same legal scholarship that is surrounding intersectionality, that is also surrounding the lived experiences of black women and femmes, as well as other black folks. Um, throughout our life, throughout generations and our current lifespan. So when I think about critical race theory, I'm not just thinking about critical race theory, I'm thinking about the politics of care. I'm thinking about the ethic of being able to hold myself accountable as well as holding other people accountable in very structural ways, but also thinking about how we don't use the same tools that have been oppressing us for centuries um, to do that, right? So how do we reframe that? How do we think about black feminism as a construct? What is your politic and how do you live it um, are some of the core pieces of how I think about how we can shift this dynamic in this conversation. So we're not talking and going around the block of critical race theory and politicizing in such a way without actually using it as the tool that it was designed for to interrogate, to question, to seek the answers, to figure out is critical race theory is actionable right? It's all about the action and wanting us to think about how we can actually move towards everyday freedom. Same thing Black feminists have been doing since forever. <laughs> and Angela, you're uh, working on your PhD. What are you, what is your PhD focusing on? Yeah, so I am currently writing um, on and how in darkened women from an darkened feminist epistemology developed by Dr. Cynthia Dillard. Um, how they see themselves as leaders and world builders um, is very much centered on in dark and feminist epistemology, black feminist work, Fierian um, philosophy. So when we talk about being a teacher and a learner simultaneously, so completely abolishing this idea of hierarchy 
and how we can then be in conversation together about how we can change and build this world. So also thinking about intersectionality, thinking about telling our own stories, thinking about how we critique liberalism, how we think about the ways that our interests are converging, not in a way that's divisive, but in a way that we are actually bound up together in this world. So how can we build it for better? Well, you know, prior, prior to uh, the Donald Trump uh, executive directive uh, dealing with uh, diversity programs and the teachings of uh, or efforts to deal with uh, anti-racism, uh, most people uh, had no clue as to what CRT was all about. Uh, and uh, even today, many people don't know, particularly African-Americans and uh, Latinos and other people of, uh, of color. And uh, as a result, they're kind of left out of the, uh, the debate. Uh, they, 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 they're, they're getting pushed back and don't know why or what it is that they can do. So can you kind of talk about the distinctions between this analytical framework that, you, that, you, that you're referring to and uh, the teaching of, uh, of, of, about racial history in our classrooms uh, at the uh, K to uh, 12 level, at the undergraduate school level, in corporations where uh, racism obviously is uh, very, uh, very prevalent. Uh, and uh, the other institutions that we deal with on a regular basis. So as I raise that question, I see that it's time for us to take uh, another break. So what I'm going to do is, uh, you know, we're going to take our break uh, right now, and then we're going to come back and uh, start off with, uh, with the answers to uh, that question. I want you to stay with us as we continue this uh, very uh, illuminating uh, conversation with two experts. Uh, dealing with uh, critical race theory. So we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight event. Join the City of Raleigh Museum in their virtual presentation of the African American Genealogy Symposium on February 12th at 10 a.m. This event will be exploring various efforts across North Carolina to recover family connections of enslaved people. The program will feature speakers who are working with archival collections or projects that provide valuable new insights that will help families today make connections to those of the past. You may find more information at DorotheaDix.org. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Community Spotlight event. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review, where we are continuing our conversation about the uh, recent and ongoing attacks on critical race theory and the broadening of its uh, application into the, uh, into the real world. Uh, and we have uh, two experts uh, here that, uh, that's helping us to understand better uh, exactly what critical race theory is all about. Uh, Professor uh, Erica Wilson from uh, 
the uh, UNC uh, School of Law, uh, where she is the uh, Thomas Willis Lambert Distinguished Chair in Public Policy and the uh, Director of the Clinical Programs there, and uh, Angela Gay Audrey, who is the uh, Director of the African American Cultural Center at uh, North Carolina State uh, University and is a uh, PhD candidate uh, there. But, uh, you know, it, it, it dawned on me that uh, many people don't understand what uh, CRT is. So when this controversy uh, developed, uh, did not know how to uh, respond to it or really to understand uh, the scope of the attacks that were uh, going on. Uh, and so my question as we, as we took our break was what is it that we can do to help to arm uh, our people, or allies, or people who need to know uh, about the uh, meaning of uh, CRT and how it applies in these various institutions that we deal with on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. So uh, let's uh, start with, uh, with, with, with Ms. Angela uh, on, on this. Yes, so I'm actually thinking a little bit even more deeply about your question. You were asking about this distinction between CRT and teaching, right? Um, the pedagogy that we see in classrooms. And I'm thinking also about what was birthed or inspired from critical race theory um, in that. And I'm also thinking about, so from CRT, there became Lat crit, there's indigenous critical theory, there's Asian crit, even critical whiteness. And this is not so dissimilar from um, back when the Black Panther Party developed their 10-point program, what was birthed and inspired from that was the Young Lords, um, our Latina, our, the Puerto Ricans, um, and other Latinos and Hispanics, they formed a 13-point program. The Asian folks, they developed a 12-point a platform and program. Then the White Panthers, I, I still have not wrapped my head around what the White Panther Party was and is, but they developed a 10-point program, right? And so, it is constantly birthing and inspiring ideas. And so what that looks like in terms of the classroom, and I'm saying the classroom, and really when I say classroom, I mean everywhere. Everywhere is a site for teaching and learning, um, especially if we th think about it in a Fierian philosophy, philosophical way. So, but we're talking about concrete classrooms. So K-12, and I'll even say higher education, because I think there are some, some mirrors that align there. What's happening in the classroom is people are again, confusing culturally relevant pedagogy, um, teaching that affirms that actually doing the thing that you should be doing when you're teaching is telling the whole story, sharing the full narrative, um, showcasing history in a way that is actually like honest and authentic rather than showcasing the parts of history that privileges um, a dominant narrative that substantially oppresses mentally, emotionally, and spiritually the lives of other people. So what's happening is rather than allowing students, Black students, um, other Black and brown bodies to sit in a classroom and to bank education that tells them that their history has no leaders, has no world builders, um, nobody was thinking, they're not capable of dreaming and storytelling and writing their own narratives. We have educators who are actually affirming that all of that is possible and also more is possible, right? They're given possibilities, they're yielding to the future and letting black and brown students write themselves into the future. 
through their own storytelling, through um, exploring, like how many black and brown folks have the opportunity to explore? Like, I know I didn't have the, the chance to explore when I was a child, but now I have more opportunity to do that. And I see that more with students. TikTok is a now I don't do social media like that, but what I see on TikTok, what I see on Instagram, are kids exploring themselves, their identities, their histories, and their futures, and they're very informed about that. And so that's the fear, right? It's the fear of knowledge. It's always been a fear of knowledge. Um, so I think the difference between CRT and the distinction between CRT and teaching is that we're simply allowing students to see themselves holistically. Um, and critical race theory is allowing them to ask questions and not just take in information. It's saying, I want to know more about that. This isn't aligning with my everyday experience. It's allowing space for questioning to happen so we can actually change and shift things. Well, Erica, you, you, over at Carolina, you have a, a clinical effort uh, directed at critical uh, race theory and uh, in a forum that was that's consistent with the origination of this uh, theory in, in the first place. Uh, now, how do we get the kind of things that you're doing in the clinic and in your classroom and around in the uh, professional community out to uh, people at large, the every, everyday ordinary person to help them to understand one, what critical race theory is, but then what the attack on critical race theory is all about. Yeah, I think uh, a really important way that we do this is for those of us who are doing the work to make sure that we are connecting uh, with those who are organizing within communities. I think we often overlook uh, that within our communities, there are often people on boots on the ground doing the organizing work. And I think it's important that um, scholars and lawyers like myself are in touch with those people and figuring out, um, taking their lead in many ways in terms of the best way to disseminate this information. I think the other thing that we need to do, and I try very hard to do this, is to make sure that we, when we're talking about critical race theory, that we, um, talk about it in ways that's accessible uh, to the average person. Like when I'm telling, trying to explain to my mom what's going on with critical race theory, uh, I always have to make sure that I am um, coming at her from a lived experience perspective that she can understand based on her own lived experience, uh, what it is and why it's important. Um, the other thing I will say, just going back to the organizing, I think it is extremely important uh, that we do uh, organize parents in particular uh, to show up at these school board meetings, to show up and make their voices heard about, uh, to Angela's point, wanting their children to have culturally responsive curriculum, to have a pedagogy that um, reinforces their humanity, frankly. I mean, um, part of the issue with this, this discussion about critical race theory in the classroom especially is that uh, it presupposes that what students are being taught uh, is appropriate and starts from a neutral baseline. It does not. I mean, when you, uh, I was recently looking at uh, fifth grade textbooks on how they described slavery, and some of them said outrageous things like um, the slaves were uh, happy for the most part and well-fed, uh, for example. It doesn't teach about um, 
rebellions that we fought every step of the way. Uh, it doesn't teach about Nat Turner. It doesn't teach um, any of those kinds of things. Uh, it's a little bit of a digression from your original question, but I think it is important in terms of how do we get this out to the community. I can't emphasize enough the importance of organizing, meet people, where they're at, are we able to go where we know large groups of us are at? Are we in the churches, for example? Are we making those connections, uh, faith-based individuals that will help us to um, reach a large cross-section of us? Um, these kinds of things. Are we uh, generating an effective uh, social media campaign that will reach, uh, reach us the way that they've done on the right, for example? Yeah, and Erica, your point about um, partnering with, with local activists and having parents uh, kind of organize, that made me think of something that those of us who are in this, this space talk about often, which is having people run for local positions. And so, you know, who's on the school board? Who, who's making these decisions? And we've got to make sure that we're in those places. We've got to make sure that we vote at the local level, not just at the, you know, national level. Um, I, I wanted to get both of your reactions to, you know, we're beginning Black History Month. Um, I have various thoughts about Black History Month. I think it's an opportunity for us to uh, re-emphasize points that should be raised and information that should be taught throughout the year. But this year, it feels very ironic to me that we're in the midst of, you know, kind of Black History Month, and we're also dealing with a targeted effort to try and prevent people from understanding and appreciating and acting upon the history of Black folk. So I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, yeah, I want to get your reactions and, and just see what your thoughts are about this uh, moment in time that we're in. Erica, let's start with you. Yeah, um, I share your same dissonance, right? This is Black History Month has hit me hard uh, this time because of all the efforts to do absurd things like ban the bluest eye, for example, to completely erase um our thought leaders from uh, the curriculum that all kids get. Uh, and so I think part of it is, again, I keep going back to this reform retrenchment um, idea, uh, this idea that there are forces who would like to pigeonhole Black history into the 28 days in February. Uh, and not only that, but to dictate to us what narratives about Black history we're going to tell. We're going to tell the uh, Martin Luther King, I had a dream uh, narrative without engaging with his whole body of work. We're going to tell um, the story of Abraham Lincoln um, allegedly uh, emancipating the, the enslaved Africans without telling the story of mass rebellions that has led uh, white folks to cling to the first, uh, first Amendment and I mean, Second Amendment and guns because of the historical roots of rebellion that makes them afraid that, um, that Black people would rise up then and now. Um, but I say that to say that this fight is about um, changing the narrative for them, pigeonhole, pigeonholing it for us. And I think Black History Month uh, 
is an appropriate time to really double down on our efforts to, to fight that and to not resist the or succumb to the narratives that are being forced upon us to, to continue to engage with critical race theory and engage with a culturally responsive uh, pedagogy for, for our children uh, and to not uh, to remove the fear, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I mean, I've had events canceled. I mean, I've been uh, told that I can't come anymore uh, because of my association with critical race theory. I think that we need to be loud and boisterous about that. We need to call these people out. And more than anything, that we can't run from um, from our history and teaching about these things. I've had people suggest to me I should change the name of my clinic. I will not do it. I mean, I think it's really important that um, especially in this month of February, Black History Month, that we uh, continue to fight back and continue to craft our narratives and not allow uh, narratives to be dictated to us in terms of what's appropriate or not. I love this question, April. Thank you. It has me, I don't know if you can see it in my face, but I'm thinking a lot. I have had a dissonance. I don't know if I've ever really talked about this in depth, but I've had a dissonance with Black History Month for a very long time. One, because I am Black 365 days of the year. I'm Black, Black, Blackity Black, as Black as I can possibly be, right? Um, and that doesn't shift or change on March 1st when I still walk out of my home and I have to think about myself as a Black femme, like how, do, how, I, how, I will, how will I engage with the world and how will the world engage with me? Um, so what I've done to kind of rectify that dissonance to, to build a bridge somewhat um, is I, I don't think, think just about Black history, I think about Black futures. I was introduced to the term Black Futures Month uh, several years ago, and it really resonated because what it does is it allows me to sit in the possibilities of Blackness, right? And it allows space for dreaming. Now, we know Black History Month is, is a lot of performative. Like, we got Bath and Body Works putting Kente cloth on a candle. Like, that's not cute. <laughs> um, so what it allows me to do when I think about the possibilities of Blackness is to really reflect on history and culture um, and not and, and to also question the performance, again, to come back to accountability um, and to also think about what does that mean for me, for my own engagement and how I encourage folks to think about their freedom, to think about their future, to think about how they can every day choose that and to not sit, as Erica said, in a place of fear um, because Black folks have been socialized into fear. Like, that's a white narrative, a white story that has been um, put upon us since enslavement, right? But enslavement is not our story. It's not our history. That is a story that has been constructed as well as a reality that has been constructed from a whiteness lens and ideological perspective. And so I really love this question as we think about like, Black History and Black Futures Month and how we can engage in less of a performance and actually let it be something that we can begin to soak in, to emotionally absorb, to think about how we can allow more freedom in our lives. Coming back to this place as we sit in it with critical race theory and taking away our history and our stories, like we've been in that place for a very long time. So that dissonance is not new for me. I see that when I sit in the classroom and a teacher, like, I remember one year I was 
but sometime between 2016 and present day, I was in a course when I was doing my coursework and it was happy Black History Month, but then you completely left off the syllabus, <laughs> anything relevant to Black people for the duration of the entire semester, right? And the syllabus was very much, it needed the Black perspective. So there's always that dissonance that exists, but we have to call out the performativity, which is, I really like how Erica focused on organizing and activism and using that as a catalyst, because sometimes in educational spaces, it's just not enough. So sometimes we do have to have teachings. We need to call in our counterparts who can actually use their voice in a different way um, than what we're able to do in the institutions um, so we can have other forms of accountability. It's about how we work together and collective. And so that's also how I think about and frame Black History and Futures Month is, is really calling us in. It's calling us in to think and work and be together um, in a way that is organized. All right, that was very well said, both of you. And I am so sad that we are about out of time. This has been such an enriching discussion and one of... Mm -hmm. Um, the most wonderful discussions I've had the privilege of uh, participating in um, about critical race theory. And so we're going to let you both know that we will be reaching out to you all again. This is, of course, an issue that is ongoing. Uh, we need to continue to be educated, educate our community, um, and be inspired. And both of you are incredibly inspiring um, folks. So thank you so much for your time. So we'd like to thank our guest, Erica Wilson. She is an associate professor of law at UNC School of Law, where she is the Thomas Willis Lambeth Distinguished Chair of Public Policy and also the director of the Critical Race Lawyering Clinic, and Angela Gay Audrey, who is the director of the African American Cultural Center at North Carolina State University and also a PhD candidate. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.